Hello and welcome to the first South American football show of 2018 on the World Football Index. We've had a break now for, well, must be getting on for about a month, I think, but we're all raring to go to discuss all the latest happenings on this crazy and beautiful continent. I'm your host, Adam Brandon, and with me as ever is Simon Edwards in, in, in Colombia. How are you, Simon? Yeah, very well. I had a Christmas back in England, so it's nice to be warm again. Uh, enjoying being back, back to some football. AFC and Vigado have started with a winning 4-2 victory, albeit in an over-40s tournament, but we don't mention that. Because apparently in this tournament, it's over-40s for Colombians or any age for foreigners. So <laughs> um, I don't know if we should be insulted, but we're definitely going to win. So that's good. So yeah, I'm good. Good. How's, how's Chile? Everything good over there? Yeah, it's, uh, well, in Arica anyway, it's been pretty hot over the last couple of weeks. Plenty of time on the beach and um, yeah, nice. Somebody who probably hasn't spent too much time on the beach recently is Austin Miller in, in, in the US of A. How are you, Austin? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Longing for warmer days. Uh, the lake here has largely frozen over in chunks it is negative. I came home to negative 18 degrees Celsius temperatures. Uh, it's warmed up a bit since then. Uh, but yeah, it, it has not been as warm. But like you guys, I have enjoyed uh, the brief respite from, from South American football. It's always nice to kind of step away for a little bit and, and kind of remember why you like it so much. Um, so I've enjoyed the, the month or so away. Uh, but as you said, Adam, it's it's now it's time to get back to it. You know, we're 12 days away from the from the Libertadores starting back up, uh, and in a World Cup year, it kind of feels like there's even more energy around the continent uh, with players fighting for World Cup spots. So, I've been doing well, enjoyed the break, but ready to get back to it. Okay, well, let's jump in to this podcast and and start with one of the big stories of the week, and that's the Barcelona signing Yeri Mina from Palmeiras. Um, Mina, for long-term listeners, of course, is a World Football Index favourite. We've bigged him up for a, a couple of years now, and um, and a move which Austin you predicted would happen probably in this month. You predicted it a few few months ago, I believe. You you and Tom um, has, has has finally happened. What do you what do you make of it? And uh, and as a Palmeiras fan, I imagine you're. You're a little bit gutted as well to see it happen. I am. I am. Yerimina was one of my favorite players to watch at Palmeiras. Uh, not just uniquely talented, but uniquely charismatic. And, and just the way that he, he played the game was was always entertaining, always energetic. Um, it was always a question of, of when and not if, really, with Mina to Barcelona. Um, Barcelona played a big role in, in kind of facilitating Mina's move from Santa Fe in Colombia to Palmeiras in Brazil. Um, it was kind of under the impression that he would eventually move on. There was a clause in the contract that he would move for 9 million euros after the 2018 World Cup. Mina's performances linked with Barcelona's needs is what kind of anticipated that number. Um, so Barcelona ended up paying a little less than, a little more, I should say, than 3 million extra euros to, to move this move from July to January. Um, all told, they will pay 12.3 million euros to Palmeiras, 20% of which will then go back to Santa Fe because of a prior agreement, and a uh, part of which will also go to Palmeiras' former president, Alexandre Matos, who actually helped finance the deal to bring Nina to Palmeiras. As a Palmeiras fan, as you said, it, I am gutted, but he's talented enough that this move, you knew it was coming. 
it would have been really fun to have him around for another six months. Um, but even in 2017, you could tell he was supremely talented, not just in his country, but on this continent. He was, for my money, one of the best players in South America in, in both 2016 and 2017 at Palmatis. Um, and this is a move that I think will be beneficial for him, uh, especially leading up to the World Cup. So many players are in desperate need of, of playing time heading into the World Cup. I'm not sure if that's as much the case with Mina, uh, because he does seem to have a pretty good grip on one of those starting center back spots for the Colombian national team, that I think the experience of playing against better uh, European-based competition will be really beneficial for him, uh, especially considering the time that he would have spent at Palmeiras leading up to the World Cup would have consisted of, of six high-level Libertadores matches, uh, but also 10 to 15 really low-level Paulistown State League matches. Uh, Yuri Mina does not need to be playing against Fejo Viadia in the Paulistown at, at this point. You know, Matches against against good quality Spanish sides, I think, will be very beneficial for him. So it, it's a good move. Um, I know that Simon and I are both in agreement that, he, that he'll probably succeed at this move. It's a great value for Barcelona. It was always going to be a great value. For Barcelona, I think the extra money paid to anticipate the move doesn't really change that. So best of luck to him. Uh, he's been one of my favorite players to watch on the continent, uh, and I think he's one of the players who, who will definitely greatly succeed. Simon, we, we've seen Davison Sanchez excel in, in Europe over the past sort of 18 months or so, first with Ajax and, and, and now with Spurs, and, and we kind of predicted that he would do that. So can we be equally as confident about Yeri Mina succeeding at the Giants of Barcelona? Yeah, I think the, the Giants of Barcelona is the main question for me. Um, with Davinson Sanchez, obviously he went to Ajax, you know, a team which was you know, less pressure. Uh, obviously there was still pressure there, but it was a, a good stepping stone for him to move on to Tottenham. And I think he's benefited from the tactical work, from the... You know, the focus on game intelligence they really have there in, in Holland. In terms of Mina, you know, he's an exceptional player. He is, I, th- I haven't seen many players like him for, for many, many years. In terms of his physicality, in terms of the way he literally just bullies opposition. Um, you know, he's a very jovial, upbeat kind of guy, dancing around, lifting people in the dressing room. But he's also a fierce competitor. Um, there's very few players who you see busting a gut to get back and, and win the ball as he does or or pushing his way through a crowd of players to score that, that winning header. So there's lots of things to like. Um, there are obviously concerns because he's going from a, you know, he's moving up to a far superior a league in terms of quality into a one-of-a-kind team in a lot of ways. The, the role he'll have to deploy... And learn at Barcelona is very different to a, to any other club in the world in some respects, in terms of the tactical discipline, in terms of the, the amount of possession he'll have. And again, we've seen that he can really use that possession. I think some people see his physicality and assume that that's the be all and end all, and it really isn't. He can bring the ball out very, very well. He can slip some nice passes. He's, he's very confident on the ball. But again, these kind of proactive uh, defenders who bring it out and, and look to, to make things happen... Um, are a massive asset, but it's also something that can be concerning. And obviously with the pressure of a club like Barcelona, you know, there is the concern there that maybe once he loses the ball and people lose faith in him. But overall, he's he's really exceptional. This is a ridiculously cheap deal. Um, at three times the money, four times the money, it would, it would sound reasonable, given that the ability he has. Um, people have questioned his pace. 
you know, while he's a, you know, he's six foot five, so he's not going to be the the sharpest over the first yard, but he does have the, you know, long legs and, and, and the, the, the athleticism to, to make some good recovery tackles and track back. I've seen him catch some nippy little forwards with his, with his, you know, long legs, it's like the Terminator, like chasing after them. So I think some of the concerns people have are kind of ill-founded. I wouldn't say his pace or his any physical attribute will be a concern. It's simply that he's going into a league where he isn't going to make things look easy, at least to begin with. And that'll be a challenge for him. But I do think he has the attitude given the successes he's had as well, you know, he's everywhere he's been, he's been successful since breaking through with Santa Fe, he was player of the year in Colombia, player of the year in Colombia, in Brazil, player of the tournament in the, you know, team for the tournament in the Libertadores, in the sort of Americana, everywhere he's been, he's excelled. So it's going to be a challenge. He's going to have to learn. He's going to have to adapt, but he's got everything, everything he needs. And he's got some things that really stand out and set him aside from other players as well. Yeah, he's he's he, he's going to have to adapt to some things on the pitch. But one thing in his favour, of course, is the fact that yeah, he's moving to a country where he doesn't have to learn a new language. It's not a totally alien culture either. So yeah, it, it does give him that chance to sort of concentrate on the football side of things as well. No. Yeah, and and I, I just think his personality. Um, he's a he's a very you know confident person. He's a person who really gets on well with with his teammates. He's you know, he's, he's from a, a simple, humble background, but he really endears himself to those around him. Uh, and I think he'll benefit Barcelona in a lot of ways. You know, that's one side of the game which is kind of underlooked, you know, undervalued. Um, the kind of players who come into a dressing room and lift it. And even if he maybe doesn't start a few games, I think people will feel the impact of his presence, his his drive, his com- you know, his commitment, his competitiveness. But also his fun-loving attitude. You know, I, I, he's a very dedicated professional. But he's also, you know, he, he likes a little dance here and there. He's a very impressive dancer, and I think he'll become very popular very quickly um, with the players, and I'm sure with the fans as well. Um, in both in terms of you know his smile and his attitude, but also you know, one fans love to see a defender just knock a player off the pitch into the stands. And 50-50 with Jerry Mina, there's only one place that the striker's going to end up. I think one of the, and I'll bring Austin back into the conversation here as well, because, yeah, he's he's seen a lot of him over the last sort of year or two. And for me, the fact that he's such a threat in the box going forward as well. You know, in the Libertadores last year, yeah, he was, he was probably... Palmeiras is most dangerous attacking player. Um, he got them out of trouble in the last minute on a couple of occasions, in fact, and um, they probably wouldn't have got out the group without his goals. Um, so that's something else Barcelona fans can look forward to, I think. No. Yeah, in hearing Simon talk about Mina, um, well, first it makes me miss him more because it's a shame that I'm not going to see him in my club shirt anymore. But he's the type of player that you just want on your side, you know. Um, as Simon said, he's a he's a great teammate. He's a great personality, uh, but he's a fighter too. And we've seen that both figuratively and literally in the Libertadores, you know, going up for those last second goals, but also playing big roles um, in those those battles Palmeiras had with Peñarol last year. Uh, he was at the center of of that dust up at at the end of those two teams match match in uh in Montevideo last year so 
He's a fantastic player. As you said, Adam, he's, he's supremely dangerous going forward. One of the most dangerous defenders I've ever seen, not just because of his size, but he just is very tactically sound attacking the ball, knows how to get in a good position on a corner and on a set piece. Uh, even from the run of play, you know, in those end of game situations where, where Palmetis would just wave him forward, he could, he could find the spacing. Yeah, he, he, he's got good timing for arriving in, in the, in the box. You know, sometimes he, you know, you could mistake him for he's sort of an attacking midfield player with, with some of the timing of these runs into the box to get on the, on, on the end of crosses. So yeah, that's where Mina for me is really fascinating. Um, as, as I feel, you know, there's very few players out there like him. I do have a couple of doubts about him, and it is kind of similar to ones expressed by you know various experts. Um, the the pace thing, you know, it, it is over those first sort of two three yards where you know he 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 could be possibly a little bit suspect. It's not so much that that worries me. I I feel that he could possibly come up come unstuck it with kind of the, the pace of the dribbling by some of the top European players and stuff but he's not gonna he's not gonna really face that week in week out so um, and and I think with time he's going to be able to read the game better and and, and adapt to that so yeah I, I, I think we've got he's got a five-year deal there at Barcelona so even if he does have one or two struggles at first um, I do have faith that he, that he will probably come good. Yeah, and one final thing for me, Adam, on Mina is is just the confidence that he has. Um, and, and part of this is due to the point that Simon made that he's never really been tested as a player. You know, at both Santa Fe and Palmeiras, he was always among the best players on the pitch. Uh, but he always seems so composed and so in control that even when he does make an initial mistake, he always is confident that, okay, I can fix this. I can get back in position and make this recovery tackle. His recovery ability is, is one of the things that stuck out most to me in watching him both, you know, on TV and then in person when I got the chance to see him this past summer is he's always seems to know where he needs to be and can get there. Even though that, that full out pace might not be there. His positioning is always fantastic. And I think that is going to help him adapt is all right. Even if he does, you know, make that initial mistake he's really good at recovering and and that's a, a talent that not many defenders in his position have yeah so hopefully hoping for all the best for for Jerry Mina at Barcelona uh, both in terms of our prediction and also in terms of Colombia at the at the World Cup it looks like it's his spot to lose for Colombia um, in the squad and hopefully he gets enough game time to secure that because I think he'll be a big big important part of the Colombian team uh, important, important part of the Chilean team uh, will be Rueda, who's obviously a former manager of my team here in uh, one of my teams here in Colombia, Atletico Nacional. Also managed in Brazil, and now he's going to be the new Chile manager. So, first of all, Adam, what's your thoughts on the new appointment? Yep. So finally, after sort of a couple of months or so from Juan Antonio PC's departure as Chile boss after La Roca's failure to get to Russia 2018. Um, the Chilean FA have finally appointed their replacement. And, yeah, as you say, it's the it's the former Honduras and Ecuador national team head coach, um, Ronaldo Rueda. I like the appointment, is my initial reaction. I do have some doubts, and I have been critical 
of Rueda in the past, especially when he was Ecuador manager during the 2014 World Cup. I'll come on to that later. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's the right appointment when I look at some of the other possible options that Chile could have gone for. Um, I think the only one I could have possibly gone for over him, and it only sort of came as an option really after pretty much everything had been agreed, and and that's Eduardo Barrizzo, um, who lost his job with Sevilla, but um, obviously. He's also recovering from or, or fighting cancer at the moment. So, yeah, and I, and there was a rumour that Barito got in touch with the Chilean FA and said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in having an interview for a job. But the Chilean FA turned around and said, you know, well, they've already got the agreement in place with Royalda. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting appointment. He's 60 years old, which is quite a few years older than recent Chilean, Chile national team appointments. But I think what's interesting about this appointment and how he differs from Bielsa and Sampaoli is the fact that he likes to have closer relationships with his players than, than both Bielsa and Sampaoli. Did Bielsa and Sampaoli you know, kind of like to keep their distance a bit from their players and... and um, and rule with kind of heavy discipline as well, um, especially on the on 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 the training pitch. I, f- I think Ruda might be a bit of a lighter touch there, but he has got a good record with discipline, and he also has a decent record with with younger players. and And I think that's going to be an interesting part um, of his management because after the failure to um, not to qualify for for Russia, you know. Chile now have to look at blooding some youth into into the team over the next couple of years. You know, there, there's still going to be roles for Adoro Vidal, Charles Arangue, Gary Medal, Alexis Sanchez, possibly Bravo as well. You know, the, the four or five pillars player-wise of, of Chile's success in recent years. But pretty much the rest of the places in the side are, are, are up for grabs. So, yeah. He is more disciplined than Pizzi and and, I've, and also a lot more tactically flexible than Pizzi was. Um, so he's he's got that going for for his favour as well. And, and I think he's going to be a lot more trusting in youth and and pretty much, well, certainly San Paoli and Pizzi, you know, probably on par with Bielsa in in, in that respect. Um, well, tactically, um, I kind of find. This appointment quite interesting as well because his Atletico Nacional side, the one that won the Libertadores um, a couple of years ago now, you know, they, they set up in a 4-2-3-1 situation, which is definitely something this Chile side would be comfortable playing in. That's how they set up in the 2016 Copa America Centenario final against Argentina. So, you know, it, 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 it is a system that they... That they're used to and they and, and they know well and and I think it's a system where he's going to get the best out of some of the key players as well. I think the players are going to enjoy playing under him. If if you look at some of the football and some of the goals that Nacional scored on their way to winning the Copa Libertadores um, under under him, 
um, you know, you will see some similarities in the in the construction of the play to, to Chile at their best um, over the past couple of years. Um, so, so, so that interests me as well and excites me. Um, but my excitement is somewhat dampened by the fact, you know, there is no competitive match until the Copa America in Brazil in June 2019. So, you know, 18 months from now, pretty much. Um, but, you know, it does give him time to study his options um, as Chile attempt to retain their South American crown and and also make a go of qualifying for the 2022 World Cup. You know, there's, there's friendly matches coming up in March against um, European opposition who have qualified for, for the World Cup. Um, so, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think... I think overall it's 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 a, it's a decent appointment. Um, the fact that yeah he's got plenty of um, experience at this level as well. You know he's been to two World Cups. The only downside there is that he didn't get out of the group in either of them. But to be fair, in the 2010 World Cup, yeah he did well to get Honduras there. So you know, although they did little to impress once they were there, they were never expected to get out of the group with Spain, Chile, and Switzerland. But with Ecuador in 2014, that's where my main doubts about him really come in because I really, really vividly remember their match against Switzerland. It was their opening game of of of, of that World Cup, and um, and it was the game where they lost in in injury time against Switzerland and. The, some of his in-game management there um, was was suspect to say the least. Um, so yeah, I've, I've so that's that's kind of that's kind of my only uh, real doubt about this appointment. Whether when Chile do get to sort of a key match, key competitive match, is is whether he's going to handle the kind of in-game management. The fact that he's also yeah, he lost a couple of finals with Flamengo, no, in in Brazil as well in the in the last year. That's kind of adds to my doubt there as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy job um, for him. Uh, you know, he's succeeding um, PC and and um, and San Paoli, and both of those managers won Chile their their only ever trophies in their history. So, although Pizzi also oversaw probably Chile's grandest failure, really, I think it's also quite a difficult one for him. You know, he's gonna he's gonna be under pressure to to get the the final kind of the final bits out of this uh, out of this generation, this talented generation of players. You know, I've I've spoken before on the pod about at the moment I can't see. Where the kind of the the next generation of players is, is is coming from, but that that could all change during his his four year stint in charge. Um, I th- I think he's going to have to work closely with the under twenty um, side, especially over the next couple of years, um, to see if he can start integrating some of the more talented players into. The national team squad, which is you know one of the things Bielsa famously did um, when Chile last failed to qualify for a World Cup. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm, overall, I'm pleased, but I do have 
one or two doubts. Um, Austin, what are your thoughts and and do you think I'm being a little bit harsh on on Rueda? Um, it, with his Flamengo record, what did you make of him there? Yeah, I, th- I think you are, especially in relation to Flamengo, mainly because he wasn't there for, for but a couple months and didn't really have time to put much of an imprint on that team. Um, and this is a big blow for Flamengo because Rueda was brought in as, you know, a foreign manager into Brazil, which is always difficult. Uh, it's always a tough place to come into. There were moments when I thought his Flamengo side played really good-looking football, and there were moments when they kind of looked out of their depth as well. Um, but he was brought in to Flamengo with a long-term kind of vision in place. And so for him to leave you know, four or five months into that before he even really had a chance to put his mark on the squad, it's a blow for, for a club that, that believes that they should be doing better than they have done recently in terms of, of winning titles that matter and being in the important conversations in South American football. Uh, Flamengo have responded to Rueda's departure uh, by announcing Paulo Cesar Carpegiani as their manager, at least for now. He was brought in to be director of football, but kind of with the intention and the understanding that Rueda was probably gone. So he has now slid into the manager role as well. He is most famous as a manager for his 1981 Libertadores Championship with Flamengo. Uh, unfortunately for them, 1981 is a very long time ago. Uh, Carpegiani has, like many Brazilian managers, bounced around from place to place since then. Uh, Cordoba, Bahia, Ponte Preta, you know, any club in Brazil, he's, he's probably had a hand in it at some time. He'll be fine. Flamengo will probably continue to perform at the level that they've been performing at. Uh, but I think Rueda was an opportunity for them to kind of take a step ahead of that. And they just really didn't. You know, they lost to Independiente in, in the Copa Sudamericana. And, and now they've kind of just gone back to where they were. All, they'll obviously be without Paulo Guijero for the first few months. The rumors are that their big spend to replace Paulo Guijero is Wagner Lovey, who has been fine in Brazil in the past, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't exactly inspire confidence. You know, it doesn't come close to the, the dream 11s that you see all the time from these Flamengo fans. You know, oh, these are the players we're going to buy this transfer window, and this is the dream team we're going to have. At the end of the day, you're still starting Wagner Lovey. Um, as far as Rueda is concerned with Chile, I think he has what it takes to be successful. You know, 2019 seems like it's a long ways away, but, it, it, you know, it's really not. 18 months, it's, it's not a terribly long amount of time before he'll get a chance. Um, and as you said, Adam, Chile are, are defending their South American title at that Copa America. And, and I think, you know, they'll believe that, that they can have a, a good performance at that Copa America. And, and this is valuable time for him. You know, he's, he's got a decent amount of time before he's really put under pressure and can mold and shape this squad as he would want. The concern, as you said, Adam, is uh, the youth situation in Chile has not been good recently. Uh, we'll see if that continues. Uh, but unless that brightens up, it's going to be hard for whoever is in this job to make a real mark and do anything more than, than just try to kind of uh, backdoor result your way into a a fifth-place World Cup spot, and, and that can be immensely difficult. Uh, I think it's a it's a good hiring for Chile, given the options, and it's a blow for Flamengo. We'll, we'll see what they're able to do this year and what the, what they kind of end up settling on. Carpegiani, I don't believe, is, is there to be a long-term solution. 
but that said, there's not really that type of long-term answer, I think, on the market right now in Brazil. So I think Flamengo are kind of content to tread water for a little bit and then maybe see what happens after the World Cup as far as, as who could be in and out of a job. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that would be my take on, on this Rueda situation. Yeah, uh, also, I think that he, he did handle kind of some of the talented youth players at both Nacional and Flamengo quite well, no? Um, you know, as, as, as you know, I'm following uh, Vinicius Junior's career a little bit as well. Yeah, a player that fascinates me for, for the move and kind of the, the amount of pressure on his shoulders that he's got following that huge money move to Real Madrid. So I kind of find it interesting to, to, to see how he's doing week to week. And I feel that, you know, um, Real managed, managed him and handled him pretty well now in recent months too. And Simon, I'll, I'll bring you in a minute as well to maybe talk about some of the work he did with some up-and-coming talented national players as well a couple of years ago, Davison Sanchez being one, of course. Austin first, though. Yeah, I think the best football that, that Vinicius Jr. definitely played for Flamengo this year was under Rueda. Lucas Paqueta, another young player for Flamengo, got chances. Felipe Viseo, uh, another young player, uh, got chances and performed well. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a good point that he has the experience working with young players. Uh, we'll see what he can get out of, out of those young Chileans. Simon, what, what was he able to do at Nacional with those youngsters? Yeah, you know, he definitely incorporated them and, and it benefited the team. Um, he inherited a very, very strong Nacional team from Osorio, who'd done some really important, innovative tactical work. So I think he did inherit a team that was, was very well drilled, he didn't change drastically. In some ways, he kind of simplified the system, but it was very, very effective. I think as a manager, he's very statesmanly, I think is one thing. He's very popular with the players, but he also carries himself in a very, very professional, appropriate way. I think he'll be a very well-suited representative for the national team. In terms of young players, Nacional didn't need to bring through the likes of Davison Sanchez or uh, Marlos Moreno, uh, Sebastian Perez. They had good alternatives. Uh, for much of that Libertadores campaign, the likes of Alejandro Guerra were, were coming off the bench. There was a lot of rotation. Um, so he had experienced alternatives, but he saw the value in the likes of Marlos Moreno, who at the time was you know, 18, 19 years old, and he was playing an important playmaking role. Damison Sanchez, you know, they had the likes of Najera. They had some experienced players who could have kept in that central defensive role but he brought through Damison Sanchez more recently. Uh, Carlos Cuesta was was introduced to the team. So he did inherit a good team um, for, with Nacional, a team that had the potential to be Libertadores contenders. But it was those young players coming in and also maintaining a really positive, professional, kind of upbeat uh, atmosphere in the, in the changing room um, that was so important. Um, and I think he's conducted himself very, very professionally had some health scares. It's made himself very, very popular with the Nacional fans. So I think he did a really good job, both in terms of bringing through players. He's one of, I think he may be the most successful Nacional manager ever. And yeah, he didn't put a foot wrong at Nacional. Um, you know, I think he had a difficult time at Flamengo, as many, many coaches do. Um, obviously, you know, he's a, he's a slightly older manager than Chile have had before, but I think he'll... Given that Chile have had some very innovative ideas in the past, I think he'll, you know, continue some of those and, and kind of 
maybe simplify things a little bit, but I think he will also get the best out of some of the key players, which I think is very, very important for Chile, um, given they have some very exceptional talents uh, and then some other players that you know need to be within a good system. And I think you'll, I think you'll do that. So I think he's a good appointment for for Chile. Yeah. So so his first matches in charge look like they're probably going to be um, against Sweden and um, France. Um, I think. The Sweden friendly has been confirmed. I think that's going to be in Stockholm. And the France one is going to be confirmed any day now. Um, Right, okay. I think it's time to move on to um, another topic. And that is of a club that we've mentioned quite a bit in the last few minutes, actually. And that's Atletico Nacional. Um, So, uh, we had a question in from Rick Barendrecht, who's also a writer with World Football Index. Um, He has been asking Simon about this kind of, well, how, how, how can we describe it? A kind of a, a disaster going on at the moment, though, with, with Atletico Nacional and, um, and they're selling off of the, of the crown jewels at the, at, at the club over the last uh, year or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Medellin is is not a happy place if you wear green and white. If you wear red and blue, not too bad. They just uh, made a big signing this evening, a, a famous striker bringing back, which is which is good. But Nacional, uh, far from happy. Um, so they won the Copa Libertadores in 2016. They've just come off their most successful period ever. Uh, Franco Armani, who's just about to leave or on his on his way out of the door, is actually the most successful player in the history of the club having played the last few years. So they won the 2016 Copa Libertadores with an exceptional side. They went to the World Club Cup. Disappointing, but, you know, things were looking very good. Uh, shortly after that tournament, they unveiled the the training centre, which is one of the best in South America. So everything kind of pointed towards the club being, uh, you know, a power in South America for years to come. And then they started to sell players. And, you know, fair enough, of course, these players have achieved everything they can, really, with Nacional. Uh, they've won the biggest trophy on the continent. And they started to sell some of the young players. So, Damison Sanchez left. Uh, Miguel Borja left. Uh, Mateo Soribe, Alejandro Guerra, Orlando Berrio, Sebastián Pérez, Jonathan Copete. And it kept going. And, okay, so 2016, they sold 30.3 million Euros worth of players, which is a huge amount in Colombia, given that the highest transfer fee is like four million in terms of purchases, and they only spent two million. Twenty seventeen, they made twelve million uh, euros and only bought in two point three million worth of players. They also made nine point two million euros from the Damison Sanchez deal because they retained a percentage of his contract. So in the last year and a half, they've made forty seven point two million. Um, and they've spent, you know, about three million since they won the Libertadores, which is obviously upsetting for the for the fans. Um, so far, this window, and everyone kind of expected this window to be very, very big and very active. They won the championship at the midpoint of last year, the opening championship in the Colombian season. Um, slightly unconvincingly, but they got their way through and they won the championship. So they secured Copa Libertadores qualification midway through last year. And everyone could kind of justify, well, maybe they're going to wait till the end of the year before they make their big signings. And, and you know, the end of the second season of, of last year was disappointing. They went out in the quarterfinals of the championship to Tolima in a very flat game. And so far, they haven't bought anybody. Um, there was 
they actually reported on their Twitter feed that they signed, they reached an agreement with Giovanni Moreno, and then many, many people went out and bought season tickets because, you know, he's a huge, huge star. He's a very, very talented player. He's been in China for a number of years. Colombian national team player, one of, you know, the really most talented, naturally talented players in South America, I would say. So they announced that he was joining. Everyone bought their season ticket and thought, okay, so Nacional's turning it around. And then they announced that they hadn't signed him. Uh, in fact, it was announced in China two days later that no agreement was reached. And yesterday, uh, Giovanni Moreno came out and said, yeah, I don't, I can't, I don't want to join a team that's not competitive, that's not serious, that's not looking to strengthen. Again, this week, Magnelli Torres looks like he's on the verge of leaving. Uh, Felipe Aguila, a defender, may be going to Independiente or moving to Brazil. Uh, Franco Amarni, who I'm sure we'll mention maybe briefly later, is off, his, off to River Plate. An excellent, superb goalkeeper. And actually at the stadium, there were 40,000 fans uh, went for a ceremony to say goodbye to Armani. They were singing songs. But the way things are looking, that may be the biggest attendance they get all year. Because Colombian fans really speak with their with their feet. You know, they, they let the club know. If they're not happy, they will not go to the stadium. And right now, if nothing changes... It's going to be like 5,000 fans at the first game of the season in a 45,000-seat stadium. This is really, really concerning. And there's a lot of questions being asked about what is the motive behind this? Where has this money gone? They've received more money than any club in Colombian history. And so far, they've bought nobody. So there's lots of options um, still, but they really need to get moving because right now this is a disaster. And if the season starts as it is today, this is going to set the club back three, four years and undo all of the good work and all of the money they brought in off the back of this Libertadores win and undermine the prestige of the club. It's going to be a hugely damaging thing. Um, so really, I just hope that they do something because every single player involved in that 2016 Libertadores is gone, except for Boca Negra, who is very, you know, he's, he's decent, but he's average. And Alexis Enriquez, who is slow and getting slower. So nobody worth anything is left at the club, apart from Carlos Cuesta, who's 18-19, and I'm sure as soon as his value reaches a certain level, he'll be out the door as well. So very, very concerning times. If Nacional are to regain some stability, regain some prestige and and have a competitive year, they're going to have to have a very busy couple of weeks because they're back at training now. And what they have at training is is poor. There's no striker there. They have no centre forward at all. No number 10. Um, it's It's very worrying, very worrying indeed. Yeah, um... Yeah, so this Atletico Nacional situation, yeah, a, a lot of their supporters are very angry, you know, and, and, and we've seen we've seen quite a lot of protests um, <laughs> on the internet and on the streets, you no, know, over, over over the past few weeks. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's just starting. Um, obviously, the season hasn't begun yet, but people are becoming more and more alarmed because you know, this is when they expected progress to be made. And they see clubs around them, even Junior, who've spent loads of money in recent years buying big players. Millonarios buying big. Deportivo Cali signed Sand this week. So they see all of their rivals starting to make bids and, and they haven't done anything. So there's there's a, a movement on Twitter. Um, there's um, all around the city, people are hanging banners, asking the directors when they're going to put together a team competitive and and where's the money and these questions. So I can kind of feel something building and brewing and, uh, and 
it was something that Giovanni Moreno referenced in an interview this week when he said that he wasn't joining the team, not for financial reasons. If he said if it was for financial reasons, he'd stay in China. But he wanted to join Nacional to, to, you know, to, to support the club, but he didn't feel that the club was supporting themselves and they were letting the fans down. So the club is currently playing in the Florida tournament in the United States. Um, and you know the the fans are getting more and more frustrated. So I think a lot of the protests will centre around the the initial games that the club have if things don't change. But there's already movements. There's already fans outside the training ground. There's banners being raised, and, it, and it's being really pointed at two or three directors uh, who are going to have a difficult time for things because Medellin is you know a relatively large population, but it's a small city, and being the most hated man in Medellin is is not a great not a great place to be. I think with this issue, you know, you, you know, we're seeing it a lot in the last couple of months, really. Um, you know, across the world, um, with sort of key players leaving, leaving their sides, um, and, and and you and you get like the football fan that sees and understands their club as a business that has to sort of clear its debts and, and make some money and 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 keep their directors happy, etc. But then. You know, you've also got kind of a more sort of traditional football fan that simply sees their club as a sporting institution and does not really care about the re- reality of the finances. And I suspect a lot of those Atletico Nacional fans, you know, <laughs> you know, they don't care that all this money is coming into the club. You know, it's going into the club's pockets or the you know directors of the club's pockets. Not it's not going into their pockets. So of course they are angry, you know. M- money in money in your club's bank account, you know, doesn't score and make goals. Um, you know, you can't dream about money in your club's bank account um, winning you the Liverpool stories. You know, you you want to see your heroes on the pitch, um, and you want to see them in your colours. You don't want to see them in in somebody else's colours. You know, whatever the price, really. So I I do find it weird sometimes when you get supporters. Yeah, who kind of I feel want to appear kind of so sensible and business savvy that they actually forget that the game is about dreaming and glory to a certain extent. Anyway, I, I just wanted to get that off the tre- off my chest, possibly due to the fact that Norwich are about to sell one of their best players today, so it's it's probably hitting a little bit close to home or on 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 that subject as well. But yeah, I say. I, I, I can see both sides of, of this story, but you know, I, 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 th- I think most football fans would much rather keep a player that you know is good rather than cash in, you know, whatever the price. But obviously, becomes yeah. more complicated when those players want to leave. But I feel the real issue here with Atletico Nacional is that it doesn't seem to be much urgency in getting those players replaced. Yeah, I mean, they brought in Almiron, and that was kind of seen as a way of keeping the fans happy, a popular choice for manager, a good manager. But, um, there's, yeah, I mean, and the issue is as well, and and absolutely the, the financial part of things are important. The club has, you know, invested the money well in terms of youth development, in terms of training facilities. There's talk of them developing their own stadium, which obviously will be hugely expensive and, you know, quite rare in South America as well to have a club to have their own stadium. Um so these are all important aspects, but but my main concern is, for example, you know they sold the players at a point where they were well above what most Colombians could could get 
for for a, for a player leaving the Colombian Colombian league. Miguel Borja was close to ten million. Um, Colombian clubs don't tend to sell players at their true value, and given they just won the Libertadores, you know they were getting five million, four million for for players. And again, I think that's cheap in the world market, but for a Colombian club, that's kind of unheard of to be able to generate forty-seven million euros. Um, but they could they could have spent ten million and built a, a team that was capable of winning the Colombian league very very easily. Um, buying within Colombia, buying you know signing some players out of contract. There are certain players in Brazil who maybe aren't performing as well as they could do. You know, there's definitely the players out there for 10 million, 12 million. They could have built an exceptional team. You look at what Junior's done with three or four million, and it's it's kind of remarkable in terms of the amount of money they've spent within the context. So I think the point is more that it wouldn't have taken that much to make an exceptional team, and they haven't really done anything yet. So go ahead. Yeah. Do, do you think that it's uh, it's possibly a case, and, and we have seen this with clubs in the past as well, especially clubs who, who kind of you know focus a lot on winning the Libertadores. Do you think that maybe they overstretched their budget for that, and they're still having to pay off the debts? Maybe. Yeah, you you could see it that way, but I think a lot of the players have been at the club for a while. Um, it wasn't as though I mean the only big investment to win that Libertadores was Miguel Borja. They spent €2 million Euros on Borja um, halfway through the campaign to get them over the line. But then they sold him for €10 million a few months later. So, you know, that is something that does happen. But I think in this case, a lot of the players were already there. They didn't buy foreigners. They didn't buy, you know, players who weren't already of the level of the club. They just kind of grew with the players. So I think this, this is a, a strange case because, you know, it, it does look like something untoward is happening because... None of this is in keeping with the model that seemed to be in place. You know, when I was asked at the beginning of last year, I, you know, I thought, no, the transition will be fine. They've, they've replaced fairly well. But the players have continued to leave and nobody has come in. So it's very worrying um, for a club that looked perfectly set up to be a, a dominant uh, a power in South American football for years to come. They've kind of thrown all of that away. And I do think it's going to be very, very expensive uh, in the in the coming years to not have invested some of that money because you know they they had a brand they had a name they were they were known you know for on the field performances for a very attractive style of play for everything related to the Chapecoense disaster you know it really improved the prestige of the club and the reputation of the club and and if they go to the Libertadores and and flop and with the team they have right now I can't see them scoring goals and the defense isn't being updated. The goalkeeper is pretty poor. You know they're not they're not going to build upon that that success and that development, which would have been so easy to do. They had an incredible amount of money for a Colombian side, and it hasn't done hasn't meant anything in terms of renewing the team. Indeed. Um, so also, and just quickly before we move on from Nacional, because we also had a question about a player that you touched on on earlier, and that and that's Franco Armani, the the goalkeeper. Um, who has moved from Nacional to River? Um, you know, do you think he has a chance of becoming Argentina's number one? And that question comes from Alvaro Sierra. I mean, anyone who's listened to this part, it will be no surprise to hear me say that I think he's already Argentina's number one in terms of ability. Um, he's been superb. He's won 13 trophies at Atletico Nacional. Uh, he's the, one of the greatest clubs players they've ever had. Uh, Rene Hagita, the legendary goalkeeper, said 
when he's compared to Armani, he feels embarrassed because he never had the dedication, the professionalism, the the commitment that Armani had to achieve so much. Um, he was a goalkeeper very briefly that Nacional signed when they won a tour of Argentina and uh, they were playing a friendly against a, a lower league Argentine team and they had both of their goalkeepers got injured. So they said, oh, can we borrow your sub goalkeeper for the rest of the game? And it was Armani and he had a, had a great game. They signed him, went to Nacional, was the sixth choice goalkeeper, had to work his way up and, and has come, you know, reached a level where he's one of the greatest goalkeepers in Colombian league football history. Uh, I think he's excellent. I think he deserves a spot in the Argentine World Cup squad. Um, I think it will benefit him hugely to be at one of the biggest clubs in Argentina, to have that cachet, to have that backing, those fans behind him. Um, if he does perform well, and I'm sure he will, I think he's been massively overlooked for years and years. And you know, I'm really happy that he has that move that he wanted. He was torn. He had the option to stay at Nacional and potentially become a Colombian citizen and represent Colombia at the World Cup. Um, that process was already underway, but he's decided to return home to 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 join the giant club of his home nation and and hopefully make the World Cup squad. Um, I think he should. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. He's been overlooked for years and years. He's now got five months to four or five months to show what he can do. Um, I hope he does it. I mean, Austin, what do you think? Big fan of Armani? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I love this move for Franco Armani. You know, I think that this is a, this is a move that, that he's deserved for, for quite some time. And, you know, as you said, he's, he's a player who's worked his way up slowly but surely uh, to become, uh, for my money, the best goalkeeper in South America. Consistently overlooked by Argentina. Uh, I don't know, did they just not get Colombian League games in Argentina or something? Uh, and this is a move that he's made with the full intention of getting in the Argentine World Cup squad. And, you know, I, I think if he gets in there, there's no reason why he can't become the starter. He's a fantastic shot stopper, great poise, great presence, maybe not as, as, as physical as, as some of the world's top goalkeepers, but I, I don't know that he's demonstrably worse than, than Sergio Romero or, or Nahuel Guzman, who are, who are the two Argentine options right now. So this is a move that Armani has made. He's believed in himself. He says, give me six months in Argentina with one of the biggest clubs, and I can get myself into the Argentine World Cup squad. And, and I don't think there's any reason why he can't. I, th- I, think the, I think the biggest question mark about Armani and um, a possible role in the Argentina national team is what you look for now in many goalkeepers, many modern goalkeepers, and especially when you consider who Argentina's head coach is, and that's Jorge Sampaoli, is, is how he is with his feet. And I don't think Armani's the strongest with his feet, although I did read um, a series of tweets the other day where, where he was actually apparently quoted as uh, as thanking René Higuita, who um, Simon mentioned earlier, um, that he's been actually been doing some work on that side of his game. So that's kind of interesting, but um, whether at kind of at his age, whether that's going to come easy to him, uh, especially in the pressure of playing in the Argentina national team and, and kind of the pace that Sampaoli demands it at as well. Um, yeah. That's my big doubt about, about him. But do you think, but Adam, do you think that Argentina have a keeper who can do that at a better level than Armani? I, I get the general point, but do you really believe that you know Romero or, or Guzman would be that much better at it? 
yeah, it, it's it's yeah, but that's a that's a fair point. But I do think that well, the fact that Romero's kind of got a year on him already, sort of working under Sam Pauli. Um, I think that that might be his obstacle. Um, I think it. I think Sam Sam Pauli could see it as kind of quite a big risk to suddenly. Well, basically, he's going to have to get. Yeah, if 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 Armani was to become Argentina's number one, Armani's first competitive match in an Argentina shirt would have to be the opening game of a World Cup, and, and that's an immense amount of pressure, especially in that in in that position. And also, my other slight doubt about Armani, uh, and I do rate him as a goalkeeper. Don't get me wrong, but. Yeah, he has made a couple of mistakes in high-profile games as well. I remember one of his poorest performances came in in the in the World Cup World Club Cup as um, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I, personally, I'd be a little bit nervous for him if if he was blooded in the Argentina national team in that situation, even if he did already have a couple of friendlies under his belt. Um, but yeah, he he he's probably a better goalkeeper than than the other two. But it's 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 a difficult position uh, for a manager to to suddenly kind of give a de- debut to in such a big game. It's it's a tough. Well, one. we can only hope that it goes through because there's actually a delay because uh, with a play according to Nacional, they've just released a statement. Say that River Plate haven't made the initial financial uh, provide the initial financial documentation. It's going to be the payments will be split between multiple payments, and they haven't received the initial one, so they haven't yet signed the agreement to allow him to travel to Argentina to complete the move. So the absolute shambles surrounding Atletico Nacional hopefully won't ruin this deal because obviously if the situation can't be resolved, he can't leave. It would be an absolute disaster for everybody. But hopefully that will be resolved. But at the moment, there's still a delay. Nacional are blaming River Plate. River Plate are blaming Nacional. Uh, and I just hope this doesn't ruin the, the dream move of, of one of the great Colombian goalkeepers. Yeah, well, yeah, that does, that does sound problematic. Um, anyway, I, I think maybe we should move on and, and um, touch on some issues in Brazil um, at the moment. So we had... Simon, I, I, I know that you had a couple of questions come in via Facebook um, when you appealed out. One from Ross Wilkers. Do you want to read that question out maybe to Austin on the stadium situation in Brazil? Uh, yeah, sure. So basically Ross was just asking how the stadium situation is post-World Cup and, Limp- and the Olympics in Brazil. Uh, how how has the how are the stadiums been held up? What is, are they being used? What's the situation in regards to that and the legacy of those tournaments? Yeah, I think this is a great question and one that should probably uh, continue to be visited. You know, as as the years go on. Um, as far as the Olympics are concerned, that's not necessarily my my area of expertise. Uh, so I'm going to speak more towards those World Cup stadiums. Obviously, uh, this past year. The CBF, the governing body of football in Brazil, mandated that all matches in the Campeonato Brasileirão, uh, the first division, be played in the home state of the of the respective home teams. And what that did is it prevented bigger clubs 
uh, like Flamengo uh, and, and Palmeiras who had done this from taking some of their matches and moving them to these World Cup stadiums that were outside of their state. Uh, Manaus and Cuiabá in particular were, were two destinations, Brasilia as well. Uh, also, smaller clubs did this. America Mineiro in 2016, uh, when they were pretty much relegated, decided to try to make some extra cash before the year was done and moved all of their matches against big clubs to these World Cup stadiums for in, in, in exchange for cash. Uh, so what that has done is it has kind of hindered the ability for some of these stadiums to host events. Just very quickly kind of going stadium by stadium. Uh, the Medicana in Rio uh, was used more so as 2017 went on. Flamengo played their big matches there. Fluminense played their big matches. It looks like the Medicana will continue to be used in 2018 for the important matches of the Rio de Janeiro State League, and Flamengo will probably end up playing the Libertadores matches there as well. The Estadio Nacional in Brasilia, after that ruling from the CBF, was pretty much empty for most of 2017. believe they hosted a couple of Carioca matches, and they'll probably do that again. Uh, the state championship of Rio de Janeiro will probably send some of their matches to these World Cup stadiums, but not really enough to have a big impact. Uh, the Arena Corinthians in Sao Paulo, uh, controversially built to be the home stadium for Corinthians, uh, well-used, um, well-filled on match day. The financing for it uh, hasn't been great. They've been eternally searching for a naming rights sponsor, and that just hasn't happened despite being teased time after time after time. Uh, but all things considered, that's probably the most – that's definitely the most successful newly built stadium uh, for this World Cup. The Castellano in Fortaleza, a historic stadium, continues to host matches. The Beta Hero in Porto Alegre, the home stadium Internacional, who have returned to the top division. So that's being consistently used. Uh, the Arena Pernambuco in Recife, uh, not used very much. Uh, the biggest club in, in Recife sport, they play in the Ilha do Retiro, which is a different stadium altogether. They played a couple matches in the Arena Pernambuco. Uh, last year, they will probably play a couple of matches in the Arena Pernambuco. This year, um, but there's no real primary tenant playing top-tier football in that stadium, so that's a shame. Uh, the Arena da Baixada in Curitiba, that's the home stadium for Atlético Paranaense. They play all of their matches there. It has artificial turf. It has a roof. They actually hosted volleyball there in 2017. That forced Atlético Paranaense to play a Libertadores match away from there, actually. Uh, but so that stadium has had success. Uh, the Arena Fontinova in Salvador is home to Bahia. It seats 51,000. It usually isn't that full, but they've got very solid, decent crowds there. And the Mineiro and Belo Horizonte for Cruzeiro and Atlético Mineiro has been pretty good. So those are kind of the stadiums that have been used. There's kind of three that have, have been the, the Elefantes Brancos in Portuguese or the White Elephants. That's the Arena das Dunas in Natal. Uh, the two teams in Natal have just been dropping down the Brazilian football pyramid. That's ABC and America Natal. They really can't afford to play their matches at that stadium. The Arena da Amazonia in Manaus has actually been most successful as a stadium for women's football. Uh, a couple of the clubs in Manaus had very successful years. And so the biggest crowds that have been in that stadium outside of the World Cup have been for women's football matches. And then finally, the Arena Pantanal in Cuiabá. Um, Cuiabá is a team that's in the third division of Brazil. They play all of their home matches in that stadium, but fail to draw over a thousand people for any one. I believe they drew over a thousand maybe once in 2017. So those are, you know, crowds of, of four to 500 people. So it's a mixed bag. Uh, to declare that all of the stadiums for the World Cup was a mistake is, is I think, incorrect. 
there are stadiums that got redone that are being well used by the clubs that play in them. Uh, but there are also, you know, three or four stadiums that were unnecessary and, and just didn't work out and, and weren't needed for this World Cup. No, I, I remember in the, in, in the build-up uh, to, to Brazil 2014, um, over many years, it was pretty obvious to a lot of people that Brazil had basically picked four cities too many and and and, you know now you've got four three four stadiums sort of not needed um it it was obvious to everyone um apart from those in charge i mean it was probably obvious to them too they just you know didn't care because brazilian bureaucracy um but yeah yeah Especially Brasilia, uh, and then Cuiabá is a stadium that has had no footballing culture pretty much ever. Manaus as well. Natal uh, was probably a mistake of a stadium, but those two teams, uh, you know, América de Rio do Norte and, and ABC, they've been successful in the past. Uh, just happened to kind of catch them on a downtime. Uh, there were some cities that did not get stadiums, uh, particularly for me, Florianópolis in the south of Brazil, has two teams that have been up and down in the first division, uh, Figueirense and Avaí. Uh, I would have loved to see that city get a nice stadium as opposed to some of the cities that did. So, yeah, like I said, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag. I think it's an unfair characterization to, to say that it was all a failure, but, you know, the reality is that there are stadiums, like you said, Adam, that going into the World Cup, you knew probably wouldn't be used outside of the World Cup, and they haven't been, and, and that was unfortunately expected. Moving on, we've got another question from Rick, um, and that's on Sao Paulo's chances this year um, in, in the various competitions, I guess, that, that they'll be competing in. I would peg Sao Paulo in 2018 very similar to Sao Paulo in 2017. Um, I don't know that they will be as caught up in a relegation fight as they found themselves in 2017, but it's really hard to see this side having a lot of success uh, their best player, yeah, I'll go out on the limb and say he's their best player. Christian Cueva, the Peruvian midfielder, he will be in the Peruvian squad for the World Cup. There had been some rumblings that he wanted out. I don't think that's going to end up happening. Uh, looks like he'll stay on. He's a good, talented midfielder. Um, he was he was a big part of why they stayed up. But the biggest reason that they stayed up last year was their, their signing of Hernanis from a Chinese club. They signed him on loan for one year. And he came to Sao Paulo in the middle of last year and largely, not single-handedly, but was a massive, massive reason for why Sao Paulo weren't in a deeper relegation battle than they were. Uh, there was a clause, though, in that loan deal that after six months, his Chinese club was able to request him back. Sao Paulo and Hernanis tried as hard as they possibly could to get him to stay at Sao Paulo. He believed he had a shot to make the World Cup squad. I think he was not insane in thinking that. Cheech had kind of let him know, hey, if you keep playing like this, you have a shot. Uh, but the Chinese club was not willing to negotiate, and so he has been forced to return to that club, uh, which is a big blow for Sao Paulo because he was their best player last year, and, and that's going to be really hard for them to replace. Outside of that, they haven't done a ton uh, in the transfer market, they brought in Jeon, a talented young goalkeeper from Bahia. Goalie had been an issue for Sao Paulo for a number of years. Uh, it creep, crept up in their Libertadores campaign in 2016. It was an issue for them last year. I think that will help shore up that spot. 
Lucas Prato, they sold on a very good deal to River Plate in Argentina for 11 million euros, which is just absurd that Lucas Prato fetched that much money. Uh, so we'll see what Sao Paulo can do with that as far as, far as bringing it in. Um, they'll be fine. They'll probably finish you know, ninth to 12th in the Brasile Down. They might win a couple of matches in the Sudamericana. They could you know, maybe lock into another cup run in the Copa do Brasil. They brought in Diego Sosa, a player that I really liked from sport. We'll see what he can add into their midfield. Anderson Marchins, uh, a defender, just signed with them today. But I would not expect big things from Sao Paulo this year. Uh, they're a club that's kind of mired in this negative cycle, and, and it's kind of hard to see them getting out of that, especially this year here in 2018. So better than 2017, uh, but not by a lot. And finally... We also have another Brazil-based question there, and that's from Yusuf Amin. Um, and that's about Joe's move to Japan and how Corinthians will replace him. Yeah, so this was a move that was kind of, I think, two parts here. Uh, the move of Joe, who was the joint top scorer in the Brasileirão last year for Corinthians, a real renaissance for him. I think he thought that his play could get him into the World Cup squad, and it didn't seem like he got that indication from Cheech. He was not called up at all in 2017. And I think he kind of realized, all right, I'm not going to be called up in 2018 either. And a Japanese club, Nagoya Grampus, uh, which some of our English listeners may recognize, was a landing spot for Gary Lineker in Japan uh, many years ago, came in with an offer that Corinthians and Joe just couldn't refuse. 11 million euros for a 31-year-old player with mixed bag of success in his career. He was fantastic last year for Corinthians. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but this was the type of offer that was simply just too much for, for the player or for the club to refuse. Joe recognized that uh, his time in the Brazil national team was done, most likely, and so decided to rightfully and, and I think understandably cash in and, and you know make money off of what he was able to do for this club last year. 11 million euros for a club in Corinthians who have had financial issues in the past, who still have some financial issues, was just simply a payment that was just too much to say no to. You know, six million euros would have probably been a very good offer for Corinthians that they would have thought about. But 11 million euros, it was just absolutely insane. They have not made a move to replace him yet. They're reportedly interested in the Colombian Santiago Treyes, who was at Vitoria. Uh, had a good year for the side that just escaped relegation. And also Henrique Dorado, who with Joe was joint top scorer in the Brasileirão last year. Fluminense don't seem willing to sell Henrique Dorado, but they're also a club that is mired in a lot of financial issues right now. So for the right price, probably would move on. Right now, uh, Colin Kazim Richards, the English-born Turkish international, is the number one striker at Corinthians. Uh, it won't take more than six or eight weeks for everyone to realize that he's not cut out to be a number one striker at a big club in Brazil. He's just not. He works hard. Uh, you know, he puts in a lot of energy, but he just is not clinical enough to finish like Corinthians would need him to finish. So they'll have to make a move somewhere, whether that's Treyas, whether that's Enrique, whether that's somebody else. You know, they're going to need to make a move. Um, we talked about this in the Brazil recap pod that we did it at the end of 2017. Corinthians overachieved in 2017, and I think everybody is, is fairly aware of that. Uh, they've struggled in recent memory in the Libertadores. That's probably going to be their primary focus this year. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them crash out of that competition early again this year. 
I don't know if they'll be able to repeat what they were able to do in 2017. They bring back a lot of that squad, uh, but they just kind of found a rhythm that I don't know that they'll have this year. And losing Joe, it's going to be a big loss for them. Uh, Adam, I had a quick question for you as well from Youssef. Um, he asked about uh, Jefferson Soteldo, who's reportedly going to Universidad. Uh, is that happening? And and what are your thoughts on the move? Yeah, so to clarify, um, yeah, Soteldo, Jefferson Soteldo, a player I'm a big fan of and have been for a, a good couple of years now, Venezuelan international, big star of the... Uh, one of the big stars of the Under-20 World Cup. Venezuela, of course, um, reached, the, reached the final of that competition, losing out to a very handy England side. Um, but yeah, he's joined Universidad de Chile. Um, there were some rumours that Universidad Católica were in for him as well. But I think the key part for Saldado to move to Lu instead of Católica was the fact that off could offer him Libertadores uh, football. So um, he's going to be a real um, player to look out for, I think, in the 2018 Libertadores. This is a big chance for him to shine at a bigger club. At, he, he has been playing the last um, year or so um, for Huachapato, which is kind of a, a mid-sized uh, club here in Chile um, and he was quite often man of the match for them um, but in a, in games well in games against um, the bigger teams he he did sometimes struggle to get into the match he he, 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 he did find himself completely marked out of, um, of of the game really against Colo Colo towards the end of last season and um so, so there are some doubts there um, about how about how much he can impose himself on matches. Um, so this move is really fascinating for me. He he is very small for people who don't know him. I think he's only about five foot five. So he he's he's one of the smallest players um, probably on the continent, but he does have unbelievable dribbling skills. Um, the ball really kind of just is glued to his foot as he dribbles, um, which makes him really dangerous. And he and he does have quite a decent shot on him as well, and um, and and some nice passes. So yeah, a, a, a very good number ten on his day. Um, he needs to get more consistent, and I feel that he does need to impose himself on matches from minute one. Sometimes. He has a better impact from the bench in matches, so it's it's, it's going to be interesting how he does at Universidad de Chile. Um, on, on the other side of the city at Colo Colo, just to touch on that, Simon mentioned earlier about Atletico Nacional fans being unhappy in, in Colombia. Well, the biggest club here in Chile, Colo Colo, their 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 fans are pretty unhappy as well. Um, they haven't really done anything in the transfer market. Uh, so far, apart from sign uh, backup goalkeeper, one 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 of the positions Chile don't have to worry about, in my opinion, over the next decade is goalkeepers. There's, there's some pretty talented goalkeepers emerging in the 
in the country, and, and they said, and they signed uh, Brian Cortez. Some some people might remember him from the Libertadores last year. He he impressed in some matches for Akike. He's going to be their backup goalkeeper this year. Um, but apart from that, they haven't signed anyone, despite being linked with um, with the likes of McNally Torres and uh, Lucas Barrios. So two ex popular players at Colo Colo, but it doesn't seem like those moves are happening. In fact, tonight, Simon, we discussed this pre-pod, it looks like Lucas Barrios might be heading to junior and will be the highest paid player in Colombian football history. What do you make of that move? Yeah, no, junior uh, are doing a lot of impressive business at the moment. Um, obviously, last year they signed Chara and Teofilo Gutierrez, who at the time were the most expensive players in Colombian history in terms of salaries. So again, it's another statement of intent. They've really become a bit of an all-star team in Colombia. Um, so they've also signed uh, Peruvian international Alberto Rodriguez, who should go to the World Cup. Very closely linked with Vladimir Hernandez. It looks like he could be um, one of the... Uh, he's, he's been linked with Nacional and Junior. It was reported he was joining Junior a couple of days ago. Now it looks like Nacional may sign him um, or may not. Um, more disappointment for the fans, perhaps. But Junior, you know, doing some excellent business, bringing in many, many players. They almost signed Jefferson Duque as well, but he actually failed a medical, which is a shame. Um, but they're turning into a bit of an all-star team, Junior. It'll be interesting to see how they do at the Libertadores this year because a big team full of really interesting players, and they're definitely splashing the cash. Again, which makes it even more infuriating for the Nacional fans. I actually had one more question on... Um, on Chile while I've got you. Uh, David Lauter on Facebook said, is it true that Alexis Sanchez has always struggled to get on with his teammates at club and country? How is he seen? How is his personality? How does he fit within the mix of the players there in Chile? And any indication as how he is with uh, his teammates in Arsenal or, or elsewhere? Yeah, so basically there's no doubt that Alexis Sanchez is a little bit of a an introvert I think, compared to a lot of his kind of professional colleagues. Um, and I think he he does have a habit of isolating himself from his teammates. Certainly there was a lot of talk here in Chile during um, both the Copa Americas, really 2015 and 2016, of, of him distance, distancing himself um, from his colleagues a little bit, you know, solely concentrating on his own performances um, and, you know, for the benefit of the national team, whilst some of the other players were perhaps, uh, you know, um, the more extrovert types, such as Vidal, for example, were were out partying. Um, Sanchez isn't the type to do that at all. So Sanchez is a very professional um, individual. He likes to keep himself to himself. Um, he, he, he isn't somebody who really seeks kind of the celebrity um, lifestyle which comes with being a kind of a superstar professional footballer. He, he will post the odd kind of tweets and, and, and Instagram, but it's usually, you know, revolves around kind of a very kind of homely look, you know, with his two dogs. Um, He's, he's, he's currently dating uh, one of the most famous actresses here in, here in Chile. And, yeah, personally, 
I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I just think that's part of his personality. I, I, I think that he is he is a bit of an individual. He is a little bit of a, an introvert. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't think there's a great deal wrong with that. Um, I know that Tim Vickery, certainly on the World Football phone-in, has spoken in the past about him not, you know, getting on with Arturo Vidal. I don't think it's so much a fact that they like dislike each other or, or anything like that. I, I think Tim Tim's sort of spoken about that they're quite competitive with each other of of being kind of a big star of the, of the national team. But I think that's more Vidal towards Sanchez, possibly driving that rivalry. Uh, Personally, I, I I just see as Sanchez as as just a quiet and uh, determined type, uh, really. If you if you if you want to put his personality and and I think that shows sometimes on, on, on the football pitch. Um, you know, and we've seen that with Arsenal. Uh, that that tweet over kind of the Christmas New Year period was certainly interesting from the Egyptian El Neni. You know who who seem to sort of target Alexis. Um, yeah, he tweeted this picture of, um, well, it was a picture of El Nenny with, with some of the teammates. Um, and these teammates play for national teams who are heading to the World Cup. Um, and, and Sanchez wasn't on it. And he made a joke about, you know, Chile not qualifying for a World Cup. Yeah, I, I imagine that that joke didn't go down well with with, with Sanchez knowing how kind of passionate he is about his football and about his national team so yeah I, I i certainly don't think he's like one of the lads or or anything like that so I, th- I, th- I think there's very little actually known about about the kind of uh in ins and outs of sanchez's personality he he grew up in a in a very small town here in here in the north of chile and i live in the north of chile as well and and there is a big difference between the personalities of people here in in the north and people in the centre and south of the country. Uh, the people here in the north do tend to be a little bit more introverted and, and do keep themselves to themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I find it a fascinating topic. You can't say it really affected his, his performances or anything like that. So, no, um, I, I personally like him. I, I think he's a great professional and um, and he will go down as probably Chile's greatest ever player, or at least one of them anyway. Okay, well, I think that's it for today. Um, time-wise, we have run out. Um, it's 1.30 a.m. in the morning here. <laughs> And I have work. Don't we always? Don't we always? I I, I have work in a few hours. So um, even though there is a couple more questions, we could possibly squeeze in. I think it's best maybe to leave that for another time when we do have maybe the right people to answer them on as well. There's a couple of questions on Argentina which are coming, and we haven't got Tom with us tonight, unfortunately. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, th- I think we'll leave that for another time. Um, before I close out this pod, I'll come to you, Simon Austin, so you can tell us about where people can find you on the internet, and um, and we'll go from there. Simon? Yeah, sure. Uh, at Simon Edwards SAF on Twitter. 
Um, yeah, lots and lots of transfers. I didn't even get into most of them this episode. Uh, so I'll try and keep you updated. Lots of big moves for some of the Copa Libertadores representatives from Colombia at the moment. Uh, I'll Pasto. Pasto has done some amazing business. I'm very impressed. So some surprise moves, some interesting moves. Hopefully I'll be able to talk about some Nacional moves. And in the meantime, I'll just keep stoking the flames and sparking the revolution here in, in Medellin by sharing some of the financial details of uh of the, the the money they brought in and the money they haven't sent out in recent years. And Austin? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. As I said earlier, we are one week away from everybody's favorite footballing competition, the Brazilian State Leagues, where teams of farmers can play against true professionals. Riveting. Uh, I'll be covering those off and on, particularly Palmeiras, obviously. I tend to focus on the Pelis down for that because it's the most accessible and probably the highest quality. And then the Libertadores, as we know, just 12 days away from getting underway. So all that coverage will kick on here in a bit. One final plug from me. It's been a pretty good week for our Spotlight, uh, Scouting Spotlight podcast. Uh, we have one on Yeri Mina, who, of course, we talked about on this pod. But if you want even more discussion on him, uh, Tom Robinson and I did a Spotlight pod profiling him you can find that on my twitter account that i recently plugged as well uh boca juniors winger christian pavone has been linked with arsenal as a potential alexis sanchez replacement so that spot scouting spotlight pod is on my feed as well plus there's plenty more on the feed um wendell of fluminense has gone to sporting in portugal uh so if you want to learn a little bit more about him you can find that uh those scouting spotlights will kick on once the new year kind of starts and we can pick out some of the up-and-coming young players from South America, uh, obviously, will keep that series going. So, yeah, should be good. Uh, looking forward to getting 2018 off and running here in South America. And, Adam, you, where can the listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at AdamBrandon84 on Twitter. Um, not tweeting too much about South American football at the moment because, you know, it's, it's pretty quiet, really. Just a, just a few transfer pieces, bits of transfer news here and there, um, but that's all going to change in 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 a couple of weeks' time when the uh, Libertadores get started again. Um, looking forward to that. So yeah, it's uh, plenty to look forward to. But that's all from us today. So thanks so much to our listeners, especially those who have interacted with us today and sent in their questions. If you like what we do then rate and review us on iTunes. You probably won't, but, you know, we love you if you do do that. And that's all from us for this week. Thanks to Austin and Simon for joining me. And we'll be back soon here on the World Football Index. So, goodbye.